Welcome to the second part of this long-ass reading of COVID-19, The Great Reset by World Economic Forum co-founder Klaus Schwab and Thierry Malaritz, who's an agenda contributor. Thank you for joining me. I know that uh, last episode was a doozy, but here we go for the next part, and we're going to start with... Societal Reset 1.3. That's what chapter we're on. And I'm sure we're going to have some really great in insights into um, the future that they have planned for us here. Anyway, let's get into it. Thank you so much for listening. Historically, pandemics have tested societies to their core. The 2020 COVID-19 crisis will be no exception. Comparable to the economy, as we just saw, and geopolitics, as we will see in the next chapter, the societal upheaval unleashed by COVID-19 will last for years and possibly generations. The most immediate and visible impact is that many governments will be taken to task with a lot of anger directed at those policymakers and political figures that have appeared inadequate or ill-prepared in terms of their response to dealing with COVID-19. As Henry Kissinger observed, nations cohere and flourish on the belief that their institutions can foresee calamity arrest its impact and restore stability. When the COVID-19 pandemic is over, many countries' institutions will be perceived as having failed. This will be particularly true for some rich countries endowed with sophisticated health systems and strong assets in research, science, and innovation where citizens will ask why their authorities did so poorly when compared to others. In these, the very essence of their social fabric and socioeconomic system may emerge and be denounced as the real culprit, guilty of failing to guarantee economic and social welfare for the majority of citizens. In poorer countries, the pandemic will exact a dramatic toll in terms of social costs. It will exacerbate the societal issues that already beset them, in particular poverty, inequality, and corruption. This could in some cases lead to extreme outcomes as severe as social and societal disintegration. Social refers to interactions between individuals or groups of individuals, while societal is the adjective that relates to society as a whole. Are there any systemic lessons to be learned relating to what has and hasn't worked in terms of dealing with the pandemic? To what extent does the response of different nations reveal some inner strengths and weaknesses about particular societies or systems of governance? Some, such as Singapore, 
South Korea and Denmark, among others, seemed to fare rather well and certainly better than most. Others, such as Italy, Spain, the U.S., or the U.K., seemed to underperform on different counts, whether in terms of preparation, crisis management, public communication, the number of confirmed cases and deaths, and various other metrics. Neighboring countries that share many structural similarities, like France and Germany, had a rough equivalent number of confirmed cases, but a strikingly different number of deaths from COVID-19. Apart from differences in healthcare infrastructure, what accounts for these apparent anomalies? Currently, June 2020, we are still faced with multiple unknowns regarding the reasons why COVID-19 struck and spread with, with particular virulence in some countries and regions and not in others. However, and on aggregate, the countries that fare better share the following broad and common attributes. They were prepared for what was coming, logistically and organizationally. They made rapid and decisive decisions. They have a cost-effective and inclusive healthcare system. They are high-trust societies in which citizens have confidence in both the leadership and the information they provide. They seem under duress to exhibit a real sense of solidarity, favoring the common good over individual aspirations and needs. With the partial exception of the first and second attributes that are more technical, albeit technicality, has cultural elements embedded in it. All the others can be categorized as favorable societal characteristics, proving that core values of inclusivity, solidarity, and trust are strong determining elements and important contributors to success in containing an epidemic. It is, of course, much too early to depict with any degree of accuracy the form that the societal reset will take in different countries, but some of its broad global contours can already be delineated. First and foremost, the post-pandemic era will usher in a period of massive wealth redistribution from the rich to the poor and from capital to labor. Second, COVID-19 is likely to sound the death knell of neoliberalism, a corpus of ideas and policies that can loosely be defined as favoring competition over solidarity, creative destruction over government intervention, and economic growth over social welfare. For a number of years, the neoliberal doctrine has been on the wane with many commentators, business leaders, and policymakers increasingly denouncing its market fetishism. But COVID-19 brought the coup de grace. It is no coincidence that the two countries that over the past few years embraced the policies of neoliberalism with the most fervor, the US and the UK are among those that suffered the most casualties during the pandemic. These two concomitant forces Massive redistribution on the one hand and abandoning neoliberal policies on the other will exert a defining impact on our society's organization, ranging from how inequalities could spur social unrest to the increasing role of governments and the redefinition of social contracts. 1.3.1 Inequalities 
One seriously misleading cliche about the coronavirus resides in the metaphor of COVID-19 as a great leveler. The reality is quite the opposite. COVID-19 has exacerbated pre-existing conditions of inequality wherever and whenever it strikes. As such, it is not a leveler, neither medically nor economically or socially or psychologically. The pandemic is in reality a great unequalizer that has compounded disparities in income, wealth, and opportunity. It has laid bare for all to see not only the vast numbers of people in the world who are economically and socially vulnerable, but also the depth and degree of their fragility, a phenomenon even more prevalent in countries with low or non-existent social safety nets or weak family and social bonds. This situation, of course, predates the pandemic, but as we observed for other global issues, the virus acted as an amplifier, forcing us to recognize and acknowledge the severity of the problems relating to inequality formerly brushed aside by too many for too long. The first effect of the pandemic has been to magnify the macro challenge of social inequalities by placing a spotlight on the shocking disparities in the degree of risk to which different social classes are exposed. In much of the world, an approximate, albeit revealing, narrative emerged during the lockdowns. It described a dichotomy. The upper and middle classes were able to telework and self-school their children from their homes, primary or, when possible, secondary, more remote residences considered safer while members of the working class for those with a job were not at home and were not overseeing their children's education but were working on the front line to help save lives directly or not and the economy cleaning hospitals manning the checkouts transferring essentials and ensuring our security in the case of a highly developed service economy like the u.s Roughly a third of total jobs can be performed from home or remotely with considerable discrepancies that are highly correlated with earnings by sectors. More than 75% of American finance and insurance workers can do their job remotely, while just 3% of much lesser paid workers in the food industry can do so. In the midst of the pandemic mid-April, most new cases of infection and the death count made it clearer that, than ever that COVID-19 was far from being the great leveler or equalizer that so many people were referring to at the beginning of the pandemic. Instead, what rapidly emerged was that there was nothing fair or even-handed about how the virus went about its deadly work. In the U.S., COVID-19 has taken a disproportionate toll on African Americans, low-income people, and vulnerable populations such as the homeless. In the state of Michigan, where less than 15% of the population is black, black residents represented about 40% of deaths from COVID-19 complications. The fact that COVID-19 affected black communities so disproportionately is a mere reflection of existing inequalities. In America, as in many other countries, African Americans are poorer more likely to be unemployed or underemployed and victims of substandard housing and living conditions. As a result, they suffer more from pre-existing health conditions like obesity, heart disease, or diabetes that make COVID-19 particularly deadly.
The second effect of the pandemic and the state of lockdown that ensued was to expose the profound disconnect between the essential nature and innate value of a job done and the economic recompense it commands. Put another way, we value least economically the individual society needs the most. The sobering truth is that the heroes of the immediate COVID-19 crisis, those who at personal risk took care of the sick and kept the economy ticking, are among the worst paid professionals. The nurses, the cleaners, the delivery drivers, the workers in food factories, care homes, and warehouses, among others. It is often their contribution to economic and societal welfare that is the least recognized. Phenomenon is global, but particularly stark in the Anglo-Saxon countries where po poverty is cobbled with precariousness. The citizens in this group are not only the worst paid, but also those most at risk of losing their jobs. In the UK, for example, a large majority, almost 60% of care providers working in the community operate on zero-hour contracts, which means they have no guaranteed regular hours, and as a result, no certainty of regular income. Likewise, Workers in food factories are often on temporary employment contracts with fewer rights than normal and with no security. As for the delivery drivers, most of the time categorized as self-employed, they are paid per drop and receive no sick or holiday pay. A reality poignantly portrayed in Ken Loach's most recent work, Sorry We Missed You, a movie that illustrates the dramatic extent to which these workers are always just one mishap away from physical, emotional, or economic ruin with cascading effects worsened by stress and anxiety. In the post-pandemic era, will social inequalities increase or decrease? Much anecdotal evidence suggests, at least in the short term, that the inequalities are likely to increase. As outlined earlier, people with no or low incomes are su suffering disproportionately from the pandemic. They are more susceptible to chronic health conditions and immune deficiency and are therefore more likely to catch COVID-19 and suffer from severe infections. This will continue in the months following the outbreak. As with previous pandemic episodes like the plague, not everyone will benefit equally from medical treatments and vaccines. Particularly in the U.S., as Angus Deaton, the Nobel laureate who co-authored Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism with Anne Case, observed, drug makers and hospitals will be more powerful and wealthier than ever to the disadvantage of the poorest segments of the population. In addition, ultra-accommodative Monetary policies pursued around the world will increase wealth inequalities by fueling asset prices, most notably in financial markets and property. However, moving beyond the immediate future, the trend could reverse and provoke the opposite, less inequality. How might it happen? It could be that enough people are sufficiently outraged by the glaring injustice of the preferential treatment enjoyed exclusively by the rich that it provokes a broad societal backlash. In the U.S., a majority or a very vocal minority may demand national or community control over health care, while in Europe, underfunding of the health system will no longer be politically acceptable. 
It may also be that the pandemic will eventually compel us to rethink occupations we truly value and will force us to redesign how we collectively remunerate them. In the future, will society accept that a star hedge fund manager who specializes in short selling, whose contribution to economic and social welfare is doubtful at best, can receive an income in the millions, while a nurse whose contribution to social welfare is incontrovertible earns an infinitesimal fraction of that amount. In such an optimistic scenario, as we increasingly recognize that many workers in low-paid and insecure jobs play an essential role in our collective well-being, policies would adjust to improve both their working conditions and remuneration. Better wages would follow even if they are accompanied by reduced profits for companies or higher prices. There will be a strong social and political pressure to replace insecure contracts and exploitative loopholes with permanent positions and better training. Inequalities could therefore decline, but if history is any guide, this optimistic scenario is unlikely to prevail without massive social turmoil first. 1.3.2 Social Unrest One of the most profound dangers facing the post-pandemic era is social unrest. In some extreme cases, it could lead to societal disintegration and political collapse. Countless studies, articles, and warnings have highlighted this particular risk based on the obvious observation that when people have no jobs, no income, and no prospects for a better life, they often resort to violence. The following quote captures the essence of the problem. It applies to the U.S., but its conclusions are valid for most countries around the world. Those who are left hopeless, jobless, and without assets could easily turn against those who are better off. Already, some 30% of Americans have zero or negative wealth. If more people emerge from the current crisis with neither money nor jobs nor access to health care, and if these people become dis desperate and angry, such scenes as the recent escape of prisoners in Italy or the looting that followed Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005 might become commonplace. If governments have to resort to using paramilitary or military forces to quell, for example, riots or attacks on property, societies could begin to disintegrate. Well before the pandemic engulfed the world, social unrest has been on the rise globally, so the risk is not new, but has been amplified by COVID-19. There are different ways to define what constitutes social unrest, but over the past two years, more than 100 significant anti-government protests have been taking place around the world, in rich and poor countries alike, from the Yellow Vest riots in France to demonstrations against strongmen in countries such as Bolivia, Iran, and Sudan. Most of the latter were suppressed by brutal crackdowns, and many went into hibernation, like the global economy, when governments forced their populations into lockdowns to contain the pandemic. But after the interdiction to gather in groups and take to the streets is lifted, it is hard to imagine that old grievances and temporarily suppressed social disquiet will not erupt again 
possibly with renewed strength. In the post-pandemic era, the numbers of unemployed, worried, miserable, resentful, sick, and hungry will have swelled dramatically. Personal tragedies will accrue, fomenting anger, resentment, and exasperation in different social groups, including the unemployed, the poor, the migrants, the prisoners, the homeless, all those left out. How could all this pressure not end in an eruption? Social phenomena often exhibit the same characteristics as pandemics and as observed in previous pages, tipping points apply equally to both. When poverty, a sense of being disenfranchised and powerlessness reach a certain tipping point, disruptive social action often becomes the option of last resort. In the early days of the crisis, prominent individuals echoed such concerns and alerted the world to the growing risk of social unrest. Jacob Wallenberg, the Swedish industrialist, is one of them. In March 2020, he wrote, If the crisis goes on for long, unemployment could hit 20-30%, to 30%, while economies could contract by 20-30%. to 30%. There will be no recovery. There will be social unrest. There will be violence. There will be socioeconomic consequences, dramatic unemployment. Citizens will suffer dramatically. Some will die. Others will feel awful. We are now beyond the threshold of what... Wallenberg considered to be worrying, with unemployment exceeding 20-30% to 30 in many countries around the world, and with most economies having contracted in the second quarter of 2020 beyond a level previously considered of concern. How is this going to play out, and where is social unrest most likely to occur, and to what degree? At the time of writing this book, COVID-19 has already unleashed a global wave of social unrest. It started in the U.S. with the Black Lives Matter protests following the killing of George Floyd at the end of May 2020, but it rapidly spread around the world. COVID-19 was a determining element. George Floyd's death was the spark that lit the fire of social unrest, but the underlying conditions created by the pandemic, in particular the racial inequalities that it laid bare and the rising level of unemployment, were the fuel that amplified the protests and kept them going. How? Over the past six years, nearly 100 African Americans have died in police custody, but it took the killing of George Floyd to trigger a national uprising. Therefore, it is not by chance that this outburst of anger occurred during the pandemic that has disproportionately affected the U.S. African American community, as pointed out earlier. At the end of two June 2020, the mortality rate inflicted by COVID-19 on black Americans was 2.4 times higher than for white Americans. Simultaneously, employment among black Americans was being decimated by the corona crisis. This should not come as a surprise. The economic and social divide between African Americans and white Americans is so profound that, according to almost every metric, black workers are disadvantaged compared to white workers. In May 2020, Unemployment among African Americans stood at 16.8% versus a national level of 13.3%, a very high level that feeds into a phenomenon described by sociologists as biographical availability. The absence of full-time employment tends to increase the particular participation level in social movements. 
We do not know how the Black Lives Matter movement will evolve and if it persists, what form it will take. However, indications show it is turning into something broader than race-specific issues. The protests against systemic racism have led to more general calls about economic justice and inclusiveness. This is a logical segue to the issues of inequality addressed in the previous subchapter, which also illustrates how risks inter interact with each other and amplify one another. It is important to emphasize that no situation is set in stone and that there are no mechanical triggers for social unrest. It remains an expression of a collective human dynamic and frame of mind that is dependent upon a multitude of factors. True to the notions of interconnectedness and complexity, outbursts of social unrest are quintessential nonlinear events that can be triggered by a broad variety of political, economic, societal, technological, and environmental factors. They, they range from things as different as economic shocks, hardship caused by extreme weather events, racial tensions, food scarcity, and even sentiments of unfairness. All these and more always, almost always interact with each other and create cascading effects. Therefore, specific situations of turmoil cannot be forecasted, but can, however, be anticipated. Which countries are most susceptible? At first glance, poorer countries with no safety nets and rich countries with weak social safety nets are most at risk because they have no or few, fewer policy measures like unemployment benefits to cushion the shock of income loss. For this reason, strongly individualistic countries like the U.S. could be more at risk than European or Asian countries that either have a greater sense of solidarity, like in Southern Europe, or a better social system for assisting the underprivileged, like in Northern Europe. Sometimes the two come together. Countries like Italy, for example, possess both a strong social safety net and a strong sense of solidarity, particularly in intergenerational terms. In a similar vein, the Confucianism prevalent in so many Asian countries places a sense of duty and generational solidarity before individual rights. It also puts high value on measures and rules that benefit the community as a whole. All this does not mean, of course, that European or Asian countries are immune from social unrest. Far from it! As the Yellow Vest movement demonstrated in the case of France, violent and sustained for forms of social unrest can erupt even in countries endowed with a robust social safety net, but where social expectations are left wanting. Social unrest negatively affects both economic and social welfare. But it is essential to emphasize that we are not powerless in the face of potential social unrest for the simple reason that governments and to a lesser extent companies and other organizations can prepare to mitigate the risk by enacting the right policies. The greatest underlying cause of social unrest is inequality. The policy tools to fight unacceptable levels of inequality do exist and they often lie in the hands of governments. 1.3.3 Return of Big Government In the words of John Micklethwaite and Adrian Wooldridge, the COVID-19 pandemic has made government important again, not just powerful again, look at those once mighty companies begging for help, but also vital again. 
It matters enormously whether your country has a good health service, competent bureaucrats, and sound finances. Good government is the difference between living and dying. One of the great lessons of the past five centuries in Europe and America is this. Acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. It's always been the case, and there is no reason why it should be different with the COVID-19 pandemic. Historians point to the fact that the rising fiscal resources of capitalist countries from the 18th century onwards were always so closely associated with the need to fight wars, particularly those that took place in distant countries and that required maritime capacities. Such was the case with the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 1763, described as the first truly global war that involved all the great powers of Europe at the time. Since then, the responses to major crises have always further consolidated the power of the state, starting with taxation. An inherent and essential attribute of sovereignty belonging as a matter of right to every independent government. A few examples illustrating the point strongly suggest that this time, as in the past, taxation will increase. As in the past, the social rationale and political justification underlying the increases will be based upon the narrative of countries at war, only this time against an invisible enemy. France's top rate of income tax was zero in 1914. A year after the end of the World War I, it was 50%. Canada introduced income tax in 1917 as a temporary measure to finance the war, and then expanded it dramatically during World War II with a flat 20% surtax imposed on all income tax payable by persons other than corporations and the introduction of high marginal tax rates, 69%. Rates came down after the war, but remained substantially higher than they had been before. Similarly, but during World War II, income tax in America turned from a class tax to a mass tax, with the number of payers rising from 7 million in 1940 to 42 million in 1945. The most pro progressive tax years in U.S. history were 1944 and 1945, with a 94% rate apply to any income above $200,000, the equivalent in 2009 of $2.4 million. Such top rates, often denounced as confiscatory by those who had to pay them, would not drop below 80% for another 20 years. At the end of World War II, many other countries adopted similar and often extreme tax measures. In the UK during the war, the top income tax rate rose to an extraordinarily stunning 99.25%. At times, the sovereign power of the state to tax translated into tangible societal gains in different domains, such as the creation of a welfare system. However, these massive transitions to something entirely new were always defined in terms of a response to a violent external shock or the threat of one to come. World War II, for example, led to the introduction of cradle-to-grave state welfare systems in most of Europe. So did the Cold War. Governments in capitalist countries were so worried by an internal communist rebellion that they put into place a state-led model to forestall it. This system, in which state bureaucrats manage large chunks of the economy, ranging from transportation to energy, 
stayed in place well into the 1970s. Today, the situation is fundamentally different. In the intervening decades in the Western world, the role of the state has shrunk considerably. This is a situation that is set to change because it is hard to imagine how an exogenous shock of such magnitude as the one inflicted by COVID-19 could be addressed with purely market-based solutions. Already and almost overnight, the coronavirus succeeded in altering perceptions about the complex and delicate balance between the private and public realms in favor of the latter. It has revealed that social insurance is in, is efficient and that offloading an ever greater deal of responsibilities like health and education to individuals and the markets may not be in the best interest of society. In a surprising and sudden turnaround, the idea which would have been an anathema just a few years ago, that governments can further the public good while runaway economies without supervision can wreak havoc on social welfare, may now become the norm. On the dial that measures the continuum between the government and the markets, the needle has decisively moved towards the left. For the first time since Margaret Thatcher captured the zeitgeist of an era when declaring that there is no such thing as society, governments have the upper hand. Everything that comes in the post-pandemic era will lead us to rethink government's role. Rather than simply fixing market failures when they arise, they should, as suggested by the economist Mariana Mazzucato, move towards actively shaping and creating markets that deliver sustainable and inclusive growth. They should also ensure that partnerships with business involving government funds are driven by public interest, not profit. How will this expanded role of governments manifest itself? A significant element of new, bigger government is already in place with the vastly increased and quasi-immediate government control of the economy. As detailed in Chapter 1, public economic intervention has happened very quickly and on an unprecedented scale. In April 2020, just as the pandemic began to engulf the world, Governments across the globe had announced stimulus programs amounting to several trillion dollars, as if eight or nine Marshall Plans had been put into place almost simultaneously to support the basic needs of the poorest people, preserve jobs whenever possible, and help businesses to survive. Central banks decided to cut rates and committed to provide all the liquidity that was needed while governments started to expand social welfare benefits, make direct cash transfers, cover wages, and suspend loan and mortgage payments, among other responses. Only governments had the power, capability, and reach to make such decisions without which economic calamity and a complete social meltdown would have prevailed. Looking to the future, governments will most likely, but with differing degrees of intensity, decide that it's in the best interest of society to rewrite some of the rules of the game and permanently increase their role. As happened in the 1930s in the U.S. when massive unemployment and economic insecurity were progressively addressed by a larger role for government, today a similar course of action is likely to characterize the foreseeable future. We review in other subchapters the form this will take, like in the next one on the new social contract. But let's briefly identify some of the most salient points. Health and unemployment insurance will either need to be created from scratch or be strengthened where it already exists. Social safety nets will need to be strengthened as well. 
in the Anglo-Saxon societies that are the most market-oriented. Extended unemployment benefits, sick leave, and many other social measures will ha have to be implemented to cushion the effect of the shock and will thereafter become the norm. In many countries, renewed trade union engagement will facilitate this process. Shareholder value will become a secondary consideration, bringing to the fore the primacy of stakeholder capitalism. The financialization of the world that gained so much traction in past years will probably go into reverse. Governments, particularly in the countries most affected by it, the U.S. and the U.K., will be forced to reconsider many features of this obsession with finance. They could decide on a broad range of measures from making share buybacks illegal to preventing banks from incentivizing consumer debt. The public scrutiny of private companies will increase, particularly but not only for all the businesses that benefited from public money. Some countries will nationalize while others will prefer to take equity stakes or to provide loans. In general, there will be more regulation covering many different issues such as worker safety or domestic sourcing for certain goods. Businesses will also be held to account on social and environmental fractures for which they will be expected to be a part of the solution. As an add-on, governments will strongly encourage public-private partnerships so that private companies will get more involved in the mitigation of global risks. Irrespective of the details, the role of the state will increase and in doing so will materially affect the, the way business is conducted. To varying degrees, business executives in all industries in all countries and will have to adapt to greater government intervention. Research and development for pub global public goods, such as health and climate change solutions, will be actively pursued. P taxation will increase, particularly for the most privileged, because governments will need to strengthen their resilience capabilities and wish to invest more heavily in them. As advocated by Joseph Stiglitz, the first priority is to provide more funding for the public sector especially for those parts of it that are designed to protect against the multitude of risks that a complex society faces and to fund the advances in science and higher quality education on which our future prosperity depends. These are areas in which productive jobs, researchers, teachers, and those who help run the institutions that support them can be created quickly. Even as we emerge from this crisis, we should be aware that some other crisis surely lurks around the corner. We can't predict what the next one will look like, other than it will look different from the last. Nowhere will this intrusion of governments, whose form may be benign or malign, depending on the country and the culture in which it is taking place, manifest itself with greater vigor than in the redefinition of the social contract. 1.3.4 The Social Contract It is almost inevitable that the pandemic will prompt many societies around the world to reconsider and redefine the terms of their social contract. We have already alluded to the fact that COVID-19 has acted as an amplifier of pre-existing conditions, bringing to the fore long-standing issues that 
resulted from deep structural frailties that had never been properly addressed. This dissonance and an emergent questioning of the status quo is finding expression in a loudening call to revise the social contracts by which we all are more or less bound. Broadly defined, the social contract refers to the often implicit set of arrangements and expectations that govern the relations between individuals and institutions. Put simply, it is the glue that binds societies together. Without it, the social fabric unravels. For decades, it has slowly and almost imperceptibly evolved into a direction that forced individuals to assume greater responsibility for their individual lives and economic outcomes, leading large parts of the population, most evidently in the low-income brackets, to conclude that the social contract was at best being eroded, if not in some cases breaking down entirely. The apparent illusion of low or no inflation is a practical and illustrative example of how this erosion plays out in real-life terms. For many years, the world over, the rate of inflation has fallen for many goods and services, with the exception of three things that matter the most to a great majority of us, housing, healthcare, and education. For all three, prices have risen sharply, absorbing an ever-larger proportion of disposable incomes, and in some countries even forcing families to go into debt to receive medical treatment. Similarly, in the pre-pandemic era, work opportunities had expanded in many countries, but the increase in employment rates often coincided with income stagnation and work polarization. This situation ended up eroding the economic and social welfare of a large majority of people whose revenue was no longer sufficient to guarantee a modestly decent lifestyle, including among the middle class and the rich world. Today, the fundamental reasons underpinning the loss of faith in our social contracts coalesce around issues of inequality, the ineffectiveness of most redistribution policies, a sense of exclusion and marginalization, and a general sentiment of unfairness. This is why many citizens have, become, have begun to denounce a breakdown of the social contract, expressing more and more forcefully a general loss of trust in institutions and leaders. In some countries, this widespread exasperation has taken the form of peaceful or violent demonstrations. In others, it has led to electoral victories for populist and extremist parties. Whichever form it takes, in almost all cases, the establishment's response has been left wanting, ill-prepared for the rebellion and out of ideas and policy levers to address the problem. Although they are complex, the policy solutions do exist and broadly consist in adapting the welfare state to today's world by empowering people and by responding to the demands for a fairer social contract. Over the past few years, several international organizations and think tanks have adjusted to this new reality and outlined proposals on how to make it happen. The pandemic will mark a turning point by accelerating this transition. It has crystallized the issue and made a return to the pre-pandemic status quo impossible. What form might the new social contract take? There are no off-the-shelf, ready-to-go models because each Potential solution depends upon the history and culture of the country to which it applies. Inevitably and understandably, a good social contract for China will be different from one 
for the U.S., which in turn will not resemble that of Sweden or Nigeria. However, they could all share some common features and principles, the absolute necessity of which has been made ever more obvious by the social and economic consequences of the pandemic crisis. Two in particular stand out. One, a broader if not universal provision of social assistance, social insurance, healthcare, and basic quality services. Two, a move towards enhanced protection for workers and for those currently most vulnerable, like those employed in and fueling the gig economy in which full-time employees are replaced by independent contractors and freelancers. It is often said that a nation's response to a disaster speaks volumes about its strengths and dysfunctions, and first and foremost about the quality and robustness of its social contract. As we progressively move away from the most acute moments of the crisis and begin a thorough examination of what went right and what didn't, we should expect a lot of soul-searching that will ultimately lead to a redefinition of the terms of our social contract. In countries that were perceived as providing a subpar response to the pandemic, many citizens will start asking critical questions, such as, why is it that in the midst of the pandemic, my country often lacked masks, respirators, and ventilators? Why wasn't it properly prepared? Does it have to do with the obsession with short-termism? Why are we so rich in GDP terms and so ineffective at delivering good health care to all those who need it? How can it be that a person who has spent more than 10 years training to become a medical doctor and whose end-of-year results are measured in lives receives compensation that is meager compared to that of a trader or a hedge fund manager? The COVID-19 crisis has laid bare the inadequate state of most national health systems, both in terms of costs of lives of patients and of nurses and doctors. In rich countries where tax-funded health services have suffered for a long time from a lack of resources, the UK National Health Service being the most extreme example, due to political concerns about rising taxes, calls for more spending and therefore higher taxes will get louder with a growing realization that efficient management cannot compensate for underinvestment. COVID-19 has also revealed yawning gaps in most welfare systems. At first glance, the nations that reacted in the most inclusive manner are those with an elaborate welfare system, most notably the Scandinavian countries. To provide an example, as early as March 2020, Norway guaranteed 80% of self-employed workers' average incomes based on the tax returns of the previous three years while Denmark guaranteed 75%. At the other end of the spectrum, the most market-oriented economies played catch-up and showed indecisiveness in how to protect the most vulnerable segments of the labor market, particularly the gig workers, <coughs> the independent contractors and on-call and temporary workers whose employment consists of income-earning activities that are outside the traditional employer-employee relationship. An important topic that may have a decisive impact on the new social contract is sick leave. Economists tend to agree that the absence of paid sick leave makes it harder to contain the spread of an epidemic. The simple reason being that if employees are denied access to it, they may be tempted or forced to work 
while they are infected and thus spread the disease. <clears throat> this is particularly true for low income and service workers. The two often go hand in hand. When the swine flu H1N1 pandemic occurred in 2009 to 2010, the American Public Health Association estimated that around 7 million people were infected and an additional 1,500 died because contagious employees could not afford not to go to work. Among the rich economies, only the U.S. has a system that leaves it at the discretion of employers to decide whether to provide paid sick leave. In 2019, almost a quarter of all U.S. workers, about 40 million, largely con concentrated in low-wage positions, did not benefit from it. In March 2020, when the pandemic start started to rage in the U.S., President Trump signed into law new legislation that temporarily required employers to provide two weeks of sick leave plus family leave at partial pay, but only for workers with childcare problems. It remains to be seen how this will feature in the redefinition of the social contract in the U.S. By contrast, almost all European countries require employers to provide paid sick leave for varying periods during which workers are also protected from dismissal. New laws that were promulgated at the beginning of the pandemic also meant that the state would compensate part of or the whole salary of people confined at home, including those working in the gig economy and freelancers. In Japan, all workers are entitled to a, up to 20 days of paid leave every year, while in China, they are entitled to sick pay that ranges from 60% to 100% of daily wages during any period of illness with the length of sick leave contractually agreed or defined between workers and employers. As we move forward, we should expect such issues to intrude more and more in the redefinition of our social contract. Another aspect that is critical for social contracts in Western democracies pertains to liberties and freedom. There is currently growing concern that the fight against this pandemic and future ones will lead to the creation of permanent surveillance societies. This issue is explored in more detail in the chapter on the technological reset. But suffice to say that a state emergency can only be justified when a threat is public, universal, and existential. In addition, political theorists often emphasize that extraordinary powers require authorization from the people and must be limited in time and proportion. One can agree with the former part of the assertion, public, universal, and existential threat, but what about the latter? expected to be a prominent component of future discussions about what our social contracts should look like. Collectively redefining the terms of our social contracts is an epochal task that binds the substantial challenges of the present moment to the hopes of the future. As Henry Kissinger reminded us, the historic challenge for leaders is to manage the crisis while building the future. Failure could set the world on fire. While reflecting on the contours we think a future social contract might follow, we ignore at our peril the opinion of the younger generation who will be asked to live with it. Their adherence is decisive and thus to better understand what they want, we must not forget to listen. 
This is made all the more significant by the fact that the younger generation is likely to be more radical than the older one in refashioning our social contract. The pandemic has upended their lives and a whole generation across the globe will be defined by economic and often social insecurity, with millions due to enter the workforce in the midst of a profound recession. They will bear these scars forever. Also starting off in a deficit, many students have educational debts, is likely to have long-term effects. Already the millennials, at least in the Western world, are worse off than their parents in terms of earnings, assets, and wealth. They are like, less likely to own a home or have children than their parents were. Now another generation, Gen Z, is entering a system that is sees as failing and that will be beset by long-standing problems revealed and exacerbated by the pandemic. As a college junior quoted in the New York Times puts it, young people have a deep desire for radical change because we see the broken path ahead. How will this generation respond? By proposing radical solutions and often radical action in an attempt to prevent the next disaster from striking, whether it's climate change or social inequalities. It will most likely demand a radical alternative to the present course because its members are frustrated and dogged by a nagging belief that the current system is fractured beyond repair. Youth activism is increasing worldwide, being revolutionized by social media that increases mobilization to an extent that would have been impossible before. It takes many different forms, ranging from non-institutionalized political participation to demonstrations and protests, and addresses issues as diverse as climate change, economic reforms, gender equality, and LGBTQ rights. The young generation is firmly at the vanguard of social change. There is a little doubt that it will be the catalyst for change and a source of critical momentum for the Great Reset. 1.4 Geopolitical Reset The connectivity between geopolitics and pandemics flows both ways. On the one hand, the chaotic end of multilateralism, a vacuum of global governance, and the rise of various forms of nationalism make it more difficult to deal with the outbreak. The coronavirus is spreading globally and sparing no one, while simultaneously the geopolitical fault lines that divide societies spur many leaders to focus on national responses, a situation that constrains collective effectiveness and reduces the ability to eradicate the pandemic. On the other hand, the pandemic is clearly exacerbating and accelerating geopolitical trends that were already apparent before the crisis erupted. What were they, and what is the current state of geopolitical affairs? The late economist Jean-Pierre Lehman, who taught at IMD in Lausanne, summed up today's situation with great perspicacity when he said, There is no new global order, just a chaotic transition to uncertainty. More recently, Kevin Rudd, president of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and former Australian Prime Minister expressed similar sentiments, worrying specifically about the coming post-COVID-19 anarchy. Various forms of rampant nationalism are taking the place of order and cooperation. The chaotic nature of na national and global responses to the pandemic thus stands as a warning of what could come on an even broader scale. This has been years in the making with multiple causes that intersect with each other, 
but the determining element of geopolitical instability is the progressive rebalancing from the west to the east, a transition that creates stresses and that in the process also generates global disorder. This is captured in the so-called Thucydides trap, the structural stress that inevitably occurs when a rising power like China rivals a ruling power like the U.S. This confrontation will be a source of global messiness, disorder, and uncertainty for years to come. Irrespective of whether one likes the U.S. or not, its progressive disengagement, the pr equivalent of a geopolitical taper, as the historian Niall Ferguson puts it, from the international scene is bound to increase international volatility. More and more, countries that tended to rely on global public goods provided by the U.S. hegemon for sea lane security, the fight against international terrorism, etc., will now have to defend their own backyards themselves. The 21st century will most likely be an era devoid of an absolute hegemon during which no one power gains absolute dominance. As a result, power and influence will be redistributed chaotically and in some cases grudgingly. In this messy new world, defined by a shift toward, towards multipolarity and intense competition for influence, the conflicts or tensions will no longer be driven by ideology with the partial and limited exception of radical Islam but spurred by nationalism and the competition for resources. If no one power can enforce order, our world will suffer from a global order deficit. Unless individual nations and international organizations succeed in finding solutions to better collaborate at the global level, we risk entering an age of entropy in which retrenchment fragmentation, anger, and parochialism will increasingly define our global landscape, making it less intelligible and more disorderly. The pandemic crisis has both exposed and exasperated this sad state of affairs. The magnitude and consequence of the shock it has inflicted are such that no extreme scenario can now be taken off the table. The implosion of some failing states or petrostates the possible unraveling of the EU, a breakdown between China and the U.S. that leads to war, all these and many more have now become plausible, albeit hopefully unlikely, scenarios. In the following pages, we review four main issues that will become more prevalent in the post-pandemic era and that conflate with each other. The erosion of globalization, the absence of global governments, the increasing rivalry between the U.S. and China, and the fate of fragile and failing states. 1.4.1 Globalization and Nationalism Globalization, an all-purpose word, is a broad and vague notion that refers to the global exchange between nations of goods, services, people, capital, and now even data. It has succeeded in lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but for quite a number of years now, it has been called into question and even started to recede. As highlighted previously, today's world is more interconnected than it has ever been, but for more than a decade, the economic and political impetus that made the case for and supported the increase of globalization has been on the way. Good. The global trade talks that started in the early 2000s failed to deliver an agreement while 
during that same period, the political and societal backlash against globalization relentlessly gained strength. As the social costs provoked by the asymmetric effects of globalization, particularly in terms of manufacturing, unemployment in high-income countries, the risks of financial globalization became ever more apparent after the great financial crisis that began in 2008. Thus combined, they triggered the rise of populist and right-wing parties around the world, most notably in the West, which, when they come to power, often retreat into nationalism and promote an isolationist agenda, two notions antithetical to globalization. The global economy is so intricately intertwined that it is impossible to bring globalization to an end. Okay. However, it is possible to slow it down and even to put it into reverse. We anticipate that the pandemic will do just that. It has already re-erected borders with a vengeance, reinforcing to an extreme trends that... Trends? That were already in full glare before it erupted with full force in March 2020, when it became a truly global pandemic, sparing no country such as tougher border controls, mainly because of fears about immigration, and greater protectionism, mainly because of fears about globalization. Tighter border controls for the purpose of managing the progression of the pandemic make imminent sense, but the risk that the revival of the nation state leads progressively to much greater nationalism is real. A reality that the globalization trilemma framework offered by Danny Roderick captured. In the early 2010s, when globalization was becoming a sensitive political and social issue, the Harvard economist explained why it would be the inevitable casualty if nationalism rises. The trilemma suggests that the three notions of economic globalization, political democracy, and the nation-state are mutually irreconcilable, based on the logic that only two can effectively coexist at any given time. Democracy and national sovereignty are only compatible if globalization is contained. By contrast, if both the nation-state and globalization flourish, then democracy becomes untenable. And then, if both democracy and globalization expand, there is no place for the nation-state. Therefore, one can only ever choose two out of the three. This is the essence of the trilemma. The European Union has often been used as an example to illustrate the pertinence of the conceptual framework offered by the trilemma. Combining economic integration, a proxy for globalization, with democracy implies that the important decisions have to be made at a supranational level, which somehow weakens the sovereignty of the nation-state. In the current environment, what the political trilemma framework suggests is that globalization must necessarily be contained if we are not to give up some national sovereignty or some democracy. Therefore, the rise of nationalism makes the retreat of globalization inevitable in most of the world, an impulse particularly notable in the West. The vote for Brexit and the election of President Trump on a protectionist platform are two momentous markers of the Western backlash against globalization. Subsequent studies not only validate Roderick's trilemma, but also show that the rejection of globalization by voters is a rational response 
when the economy is strong and inequality is high. The most visible form of progressive deglobalization will occur at the heart of its nuclear reactor, the global supply chain that has become emblematic of globalization. How and why will this play out? The shortening or relocalization of supply chains will be encouraged by one, businesses that see it as a risk mitigation measure against supply chain disruption, the resilience versus efficiency trade-off, and two, political pressure from both the right and the left. Since 2008, the drive towards greater localization has been firmly on the political agenda in many countries, particularly in the West, but it will now be accelerated in the post-pandemic era. On the right, the pushback against globalization is driven by protectionists and national security hawks who were already gathering force before the pandemic started. Now they will create alliances and sometimes merge with other political forces that will see the benefit of embracing an anti-globalization agenda. On the left, activists and green parties that were already stigmatizing air travel and asking for a rollback against globalization will be emboldened by the positive effect the pandemic had on our environment. Far fewer carbon emissions, much less air and water pollution. Even without pressure from the far right and the green activists, many governments will realize that some situations of trade dependency are no longer politically acceptable. How can the U.S. administration, for example, accept that 97% of antibiotics supplied in the country come from China. This process of reversing globalization will not happen overnight. Shortening supply chains will be both very challenging and very costly. For example, a thorough and all-encompassing decoupling from China would require from companies making such a move on an investment of hundreds of billions of dollars in newly located factories and from governments equivalent amounts to fund new infrastructure like airports, tra transportation links, and housing to serve the relocated supply chains. Notwithstanding that the political desire for decoupling may in some cases be stronger than the actual ability to do so, the direction of the trend is nonetheless clear. The Japanese government made this obvious when it set aside $243 billion of its 108 trillion Japanese yen rescue package to help Japanese companies pull their operations out of China. On multiple occasions, the U.S. administration has hinted at similar measures. The most likely outcome al along the globalization-no-globalization no globalization continuum lies in an in-between solution, regionalization. The success of the European Union as a tr free trade area for the new regional comprehensive economic partnership in Asia a proposed free trade agreement among the 10 countries that compose ASEAN are important illustrative cases of how regionalization may well become a new watered-down version of globalization. Even the three states that compose North America now trade more with each other than with China or Europe. As Parag Khanna points out, regionalism was clearly overtaking globalism before the pandemic exposed the vulnerabilities of our long-distance interdependence. For years, with the partial exception of direct trade between the U.S. and China, globalization, as measured by the exchange of goods, was already becoming more intra-regional than interregional. 
In the early 1990s, North America absorbed 35% of East Asia's exports, while today this proportion is down to 20%, mainly because East Asia's share of exports to itself grows every year, a natural situation as Asian countries move up the value chain, consuming more of what they produce. In 2019, as the U.S. and China unleashed a trade war, U.S. trade with China and Mexico rose while falling with China. At the same time, China's trade with ASEAN rose for the first time to above $300 billion. In short, deglobalization in the form of greater regionalization was already happening. COVID-19 will just accelerate this global divergence as North America, Europe, and Asia focus increasingly on regional self-sufficiency rather than on the distant and intricate global supply chains that formerly epitomized the essence of globalization. What form might this take? It could resemble the sequence of events that brought an earlier period of globalization to an end, but with a regional twist. Anti-globalization was strong in the run-up to 1914 and up to 1918, then less so during the 1920s, but it reignited in the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression, triggering an increase in tariff and non-tariff barriers that destroyed many businesses and inflicted much pain on the largest economies of that time. The same could happen again with a strong impulse to reshore that spreads beyond healthcare and agriculture to include larger categories of non-strategic products. Both the far right and the far left will take advantage of the crisis to promote a protectionist agenda with higher barriers of the free flow of capital goods and people. Several surveys conducted in the first few months of 2020 revealed that international companies fear a return and aggravation of protectionism in the U.S. not only on trade but also in cross-border mergers and acquisitions and government procurement. What happens in the U.S. will inevitably ricochet elsewhere with other advanced economies imposing more barriers to trade and investment, defying the appeals from experts and international organizations to refrain from protectionism. This somber scenario is not inevitable, but over the next few years, we should, we should expect the tr tensions between the forces of nationalism and openness to play out across three critical dimensions. One, global institutions, two, trade, and three, capital flows. Recently, global institutions and international organizations have been either enfeebled, like the World Trade Organization or the WHO, or not up to the task, the latter due more to being underfinanced and overgoverned than to inherent inadequacy. Global trade, as we saw in the previous chapter, will almost certainly contract as companies shorten their supply chain and ensure that they no longer rely on a single country or business abroad for critical parts and components. In the case of particularly sensitive industries like pharmaceuticals or healthcare materials, and sectors considered to be of national security interest, like telecommunications or in energy generation, there may even be an ongoing process of deintegration. This is already becoming a requirement in the U.S., and it would be surprising if this attitude does not spread to other countries and other sectors. Geopolitics is also inflicting some economic pain through the so-called weaponization of trade, triggering fear among global companies that they can no longer assume an orderly and predictable resolution of trade 
conflicts through the international rule of law. As for international capital flows, it seems already evident that national authorities and public defiance will constrain them. As already shown by so many countries and regions as different as Australia, India, or the EU, protectionist considerations will become ever more present in the post-pandemic era. Measures will range from national governments buying stakes in strategic companies to prevent foreign takeovers or imposing diverse restrictions in such takeovers to foreign direct investment, FDI, being subjected to government approval. It is telling that in April 2020, the U.S. administration decided to block a publicly administered pension fund from investing in China. In the coming years, it seems inevitable that some deglobalization will happen, spurred by the rise of nationalism and greater international fragmentation. There is no point in trying to restore the status quo ex ante. Hyperglobalization has lost all its political and social capital, and defending it is no longer politically tenable. But it is important to limit the downside of a possible freefall that would precipitate major economic damage and social suffering. A hasty retreat from globalization would entail trade and currency wars, damaging every country's economy, provoking social havoc, and triggering ethno- or clan nationalism. The establishment of a much more inclusive and equitable form of globalization that makes it sustainable both socially and environmentally is the only viable way to manage retreat. This requires policy solutions addressed in the concluding chapter and some form of effective global governance. Progress is indeed possible in those global areas that have traditionally benefited from international cooperation like environmental agreements, public health, and tax havens. This will only come about through improved global governance, the most natural and effective mitigating factor against protectionist tendencies. However, we do not yet know how its framework will evolve in the foreseeable future. At the moment, the signs are ominous that it is not going in the right direction. There is no time to waste. If we do not improve the functioning and legitimacy of our global institutions, the world will soon become unmanageable and very dangerous. There cannot be a lasting recovery without a global strategic framework of governance. 1.4.2 Global Governance Global governance is commonly defined as the process of co cooperation among transnational actors aimed at providing responses to global problems those that affect more than one state or region. It encompasses the totality of institutions, policies, norms, procedures, and initiatives through which nation states try to bring more predictability and stability to their responses to transnational challenges. This definition makes it clear that any global effort on any global issue or concern is bound to be toothless without the cooperation of nation national governments and their ability to act and legislate to support their aims. Nation states make global governance possible one leads the other, which is why the UN says that effective global governance can only be achieved with effective international cooperation. The two notions of global governance and international cooperation 
are so intertwined that it is nigh on impossible for global governance to flourish in a divided world that is retrenching and fragmenting. The more nationalism and isolationism pervade the global polity, polity the greater the chance that global governance loses its relevance and becomes ineffective. Sadly, we are now at this critical juncture. Put bluntly, we live in a world in which nobody is really in charge. COVID-19 has reminded us that the biggest problems we face are global in nature. Whether it's pandemics, climate change, terrorism, or international trade, all are global issues that we can only address and whose risks can only be mitigated in a collective fashion. But the world has become, in the words of Ian Bremmer, a G0 world, or worse, a G-2 world, U.S. and China. According to the Indian economist Arvind Subramanian, to account for the absence of leadership of the two giants by opposition to the G7, the group of seven wealthiest nations, or the G20, the G7 plus 13 other significant countries and organizations which are supposed to lead, more and more often the big problems besetting us take place beyond the control of even the most powerful nation states. The risks and issues to be confronted are increasingly globalized, interdependent, and interconnected, while the global governance capacities to do so are failing perilously, endangered by the resurgence of nationalism. Such disconnect signifies not only that the most critical global issues are being addressed in a highly fragmented, thus inadequate, manner, but also that they are actually being exacerbated by this failure to deal with them properly. Thus far from remaining constant in terms of the risk they pose, they inflate and end up increasing systemic fragility. This is shown in figure one. Strong interconnections exist between global governance failure, climate action failure, national government failure, with which it has a self-reinforcing effect, social instability, and of course the ability to successfully deal with pandemics. In a nutshell, global governance is at the nexus of all these other issues. Therefore, the concern is that without appropriate global governance, we will become paralyzed in our attempts to address and respond to global challenges, particularly when there is such a strong dissonance between short-term domestic imperatives and long-term global challenges. This is a major worry Considering that today there is no committee to save the world, the expression was used more than 20 years ago at the height of the Asian financial crisis. Pursuing the argument further, one could even claim that the general institutional decay that Fukuyama describes in Political Order and Political Decay amplifies the problem of a world devoid of global governance. It sets in motion a vicious cycle in which nation-states deal poorly with the major challenges that beset them which then feeds into the public's distrust of the state, which in turn leads to the states being starved of authority and resources, then leading to even poorer performance and the inability or unwillingness to deal with issues of global governance. COVID-19 tells just such a story of failed global governance. From the very beginning, a vacuum in global governance exacerbated by the strained relations between the U.S. and China, undermined international efforts to respond to the pandemic. At the onset of the crisis, 
International cooperation was non-existent or limited, and even during the period when it was needed the most, in the acme of the crisis during the second quarter of 2020, it remained conspicuous by its absence. Instead of triggering a set of measures coordinated globally, COVID-19 led to the opposite, a stream of border closures, restrictions in international travel and trade introduced almost without any coordination, the frequent interruption of medical supply distribution, and the ensuing competition for resources particularly visible in various attempts by several nation states to source badly needed medical equipment by any means possible. Even in the EU, countries initially chose to go it alone, but that course of action subsequently changed with practical assistance between member countries and amended EU budget in support of healthcare systems and pooled research funds to develop treatments and vaccines. And there have now been ambitious measures which would have seemed unimaginable in the pre-pandemic era susceptible of pushing the EU towards further integration, in particular a £750 billion recovery fund put forward by the European Commission. In a functioning global governance framework, nations should have come together to fight a global and coordinated war against the pandemic. Instead, the My Country First response prevailed and severely impaired attempts to the expansion of the first wave of the pandemic. It also placed constraints on the availability of protective equipment and treatment that in turn undermined the resilience of national healthcare systems. Furthermore, this fragmented approach went on to jeopardize attempts to coordinate exit policies aimed at restarting the global economic engine. In the case of the pandemic, in contrast with other recent global crises like 9-11 or the financial crisis of 2008, the global governance system failed, proving either non-existent or dysfunctional. The U.S. went on to withdraw funding from the WHO, but no matter the underlying rationale of this decision, the fact remains that it is the only organization capable of coordinating a global response to the pandemic, which means that an albeit far from perfect WHO is infinitely preferable to a non-existent one, an argument that Bill Gates compellingly and succinctly made in a tweet. Their work is slowing the spread of COVID-19, and if that work is stopped, no other organization can replace them. The world needs WHO now more than ever. Then you go ahead and fund them still. Oh yeah, he does. Back to it. <laughs> this failure is not the who's fault. No, not at all. The UN agency is merely the symptom, not the cause, of global governance failure. The who's deferential posture towards donor countries reflects its complete dependence on states agreeing to cooperate with it. The UN organization has no power to compel information sharing or enforce pandemic preparedness. Like other similar UN agencies, for example, on human rights or climate change, the WHO is saddled with limited and dwindling resources. In 2018, it had an annual budget of $4.2 billion, minuscule in comparison to any health budget around the world. In addition, it is at the perpetual mercy of member states and has effectively no tools at its disposal to directly monitor 
outbreaks, coordinate pandemic planning, or ensure effective preparedness implementation at the country level, let alone allocate resources to those countries most in need. I'm calling bullshit on all this real quick because this is, I'm gonna vomit because obviously they did event 201, but okay. Whatever. <laughs> this is all lies, but let's keep going. I'm getting triggered. All right. Back to it. <laughs> this dysfunctionality is symptomatic of a broken global governance system, and the jury is out as to whether existing global governance configurations like the UN and the WHO can be repurposed to address today's global risks. For the time being, the bottom line is this. In the face of such a vacuum in global governance, only nation states are cohesive enough to be capable of taking collective decisions. But this model doesn't work in the case of world risks that require concerted global decisions. The world will be a very dangerous place if we do not fix multilateral institutions. Global coordination will be even more necessary in the aftermath of the epidemiological crisis for it is inconceivable that the global economy could restart without sustained international cooperation. Without it, we'll be heading towards a poorer, meaner, and smaller world. 1.4.3 The Growing Rivalry Between China and the U.S. In the post-pandemic era, COVID-19 might be remembered as the turning point that ushered in a new type of Cold War between China and the U.S. The two words, new type, matter considerably. Unlike the Soviet Union, China is not seeking to impose its ideology around the world. No, not at all. Prior to the pandemic, tensions between the two dominant powers were already building up in many different domains. Trade property rights, military bases in the South China Sea, and tech and investment in strategic industries in particular. But after 40 years of strategic engagement, the U.S. and China now seem unable to bridge the ideological and political divides that separate them. Far from uniting the two geopolitical giants, the pandemic did the exact opposite by exacerbating their rivalry and intensifying competition between them. Most analysts would concur that during the COVID-19 crisis, the political and ideological fracture between the two giants grew. According to Wang Jixi, a renowned Chinese scholar and dean of the School of International Studies at Peking University, the fallout from the pandemic has pushed China-U.S. relations to their worst level since 1979, when formal ties were established. In his opinion, the bilateral economic and technological decoupling is already irreversible, and it could go as far as the global system breaking into two parts, warns Wang Yao, president of the Center for China and Globalization in Beijing. Even public figures have expressed publicly their concern. In an article published in June 2020, Li Xianlong, 
Prime Minister of Singapore warned against the perils of confrontation between the U.S. and China, which in his own words, raises profound questions about Asia's future in the shape of the emerging international order. He added that Southeast Asian countries, including Singapore, are especially concerned as they live at the intersection of the interests of various major powers and must avoid being caught in the middle or forced into invidious choices. Views, of course, differ radically on which country is right or going to come out on top by benefiting from the perceived weaknesses and fragilities of the other. But it is essential to contextualize them. There isn't a right view and a wrong view, but different and often diverging interpretations that frequently correlate with the origin, culture, and personal history of those who profess them. Pursuing further the quantum world metaphor mentioned earlier, it could be inferred from quantum physics that objective reality does not exist. We think that observation and measurement define an objective opinion, but the micro world of atoms and particles, like the macro world of geopolitics, is governed by the strange rules of quantum mechanics in which two different observers are entitled to their own opinions. This is called a superposition. Particles can be in several places or states at once. In the world of international affairs, if two different observers are entitled to their own opinions, that makes them subjective, but no less real and no less valid. If an observer can only make sense of the reality through different idiosyncratic lenses, this forces us to rethink our notion of objectivity. It is evident that the representation of reality depends on the position of the observer. In that sense, a Chinese view and a U.S. view can coexist together with multiple other views along that continuum, all of them real. To a considerable extent and for understandable reasons, the Chinese view of the world and its place in it is influenced by the humiliation suffered during the First Opium War in 1840, and the subsequent invasion in 1900 when the Eight-Nation Alliance looted Beijing and other Chinese cities before demanding compensation. Conversely, how the U.S. views the world and its place in it is largely based on the values and principles that have shaped American public life since the country's founding. These have determined both its preeminent world position and its unique attractiveness for many immigrants for 250 years. The U.S. perspective is also rooted in the unrivaled dominance it has enjoyed over the rest of the world for the past few decades and the inevitable doubts and insecurities that come with a relative loss of absolute supremacy. For understandable reasons, both China and the U.S. have a rich history, China's goes back 5,000 years, of which they are proud, leading them as Kishori, Mabubani observed to overestimate their own strengths and underestimate the strengths of the other. Vindicating the point above, all analysts and forecasters who specialize in China, the U.S., or both have access to more or less the same data and information, now a global commodity, see, hear, and read more or less the same things, but sometimes reach diametrically opposed conclusions. Some see the U.S. as the ultimate winner. Others argue that China has already won. 
and a third group states that there will be no winners. Let's briefly review each of their arguments in turn. China as a winner. The argument of those who claim that the pandemic crisis has benefited China while exposing the weaknesses of the U.S. is threefold. One, it has made the American strength as the world's most prominent military power irrelevant in the face of an invisible and microscopic enemy. Two, in the words of the American academic who's coined the expression, it hurt the U.S. soft power because of the incompetence of its response. An important caveat, the issue of whether a public response to COVID-19 was competent or incompetent has given rise to a myriad of opinions and provoked much disagreement. Yet, it remains difficult to pass judgment. In the U.S., for example, the policy response was to a large extent the responsibility of states and even cities. Hence, in effect, there was no national U.S. policy response as such. What we are discussing here are subjective opinions that shaped public attitudes. 3. It has exposed aspects of American society that some may find shocking, like the deep inequalities in the face of the outbreak, the lack of universal medical coverage, and the issue of systemic racism raised by the Black Lives Matter movement. All these prompted Kishori, Mababani, an influential analyst of the rivalry that opposes the U.S. and China, to argue that COVID-19 has reversed the roles of both countries in terms of dealing with disasters and supporting others. While in the past, the U.S. was always the first to arrive with aid where assistance was needed, like on 26 December 2004 when a major tsunami hit Indonesia, this role now belongs to China, he says. In March 2020, China sent to Italy 31 tons of medical equipment, ventilators, masks, and protective suits that the EU could not provide. In his opinion, the 6 billion people who compose the rest of the world and live in 191 countries have already begun preparing themselves for the U.S.-China geopolitical contest. Mababani says that it is their choices that will determine who who wins the rivalry contest, and that these will be based on the cold calculus of reason to work out cost-benefit analyses of what both the U.S. and China have to offer them. Sentiments may not play much of a role because all these countries will base their choice on which the U.S. or China will at the end of the day improve their citizens' living conditions. But a vast majority of them do not want to be caught in a geopolitical zero-sum game and would prefer to keep all their options open, not to be forced to choose between the U.S. and China. However, as the example of Huawei has shown, even traditional U.S. allies like France, Germany, and the U.K. are being pressured by the U.S. to do so. The decisions that countries make when facing such a stark choice will ultimately determine who emerges as the winner in the growing rivalry between U.S. and China. The U.S. as a winner. In the camp of America as the ultimate winner, arguments are centered on the inherent strengths of the U.S. as well as the perceived structural weaknesses of China. The U.S. as a winner, proponents think it is premature to call for an abrupt end of U.S. supremacy in the post-pandemic era and offer the following argument. 
The country may be declining in relative terms, but it is still a formidable hegemon in absolute terms and continues to possess a considerable amount of soft power. Its appeal as a global destination may be waning somehow, but it nonetheless remains strong as shown by the success of American universities abroad and the appeal of its cultural industry. In addition, the dollar's domination as a global currency er used in trade and perceived as a safe haven remains largely unchallenged for the moment. This translates into considerable geopolitical power enabling the U.S. authorities to exclude companies and even countries like Iran or Venezuela from the dollar system. As we saw in the preceding chapter, this may change in the future, but over the next few years, there is no alternative to the world's dominance of the U.S. dollar. More fundamentally, proponents of U.S. irreducibility will argue with Ruchir Sharma that U.S. economic supremacy has repeatedly proved declinists wrong. They will also agree with Winston Churchill, who once observed that the U.S. has an innate capability to learn from its mistakes when he remarked that the U.S. always did the right thing when all the alternatives had been exhausted. Leaving aside the highly charged political argument, democracy versus autocracy, those who believe that the U.S. will remain a winner for many more years also stress that China faces its own headwinds on its path to global superpower status. Those most frequently mentioned are the following. 1. It suffers from a demographic disadvantage with a fast aging population and a working age population that peaked in 2015. 2. Its influence in Asia is constrained by existing territorial disputes with Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, and three, it is highly energy dependent. No winner. What do those who claim that the pandemic bodes ill for both American and Chinese power and for the global order think? They argue that, like almost all other countries around the world, both China and the U.S. are certain to suffer massive economic damage that will limit their capacity to extend their reach and influence. China, whose trade sector represents more than a third of total GDP, will find it difficult to launch a sustained economic recovery when its large trading partners, like the U.S., are drastically retrenching. As for the U.S., its over-indebtedness will sooner or later constrain post-recovery spending, with the ever-present risk that the current economic crisis metastasizes into a systemic financial crisis. Referring in the case of both countries to the economic hit and domestic political difficulties, the doubters assert that both countries are likely to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Either a new Pax Seneca nor a renewed Pax Americana will rise from the ruins. Rather, both powers will be weakened at home and abroad. An underlying reason for the no-winner argument is an intriguing idea put forward by several academics, most notably Niall Ferguson. Essentially, it says that the corona crisis has exposed the failure of superpowers like the U.S. and China by highlighting the success of small states. In the words of Ferguson, the real lesson here is not that the U.S. is finished and China is going to be the dominant power of the 21st century. 
I think the reality is that all the superpowers, the United States, the People's Republic of China, and the European Union, have been exposed as highly dysfunctional. Being big, as the proponents of this idea argue, entails diseconomies of scale. Countries or empires have grown so large as to reach a threshold beyond which they cannot effectively govern themselves. This, in turn, is the reason why small economies like Singapore, Iceland, South Korea, and Israel seem to have done better than the U.S. in containing the pandemic and dealing with it. Predicting is a guessing game for fools. The simple truth is that nobody can tell with any degree of reasonable confidence or certainty how the rivalry between the U.S. and China will evolve, apart from saying that it will inevitably grow. The pandemic has exacerbated the rivalry that opposes the incumbent and the emerging power. The U.S. has stumbled in the pandemic crisis and its influence has waned. Meanwhile, China may be trying to benefit from the crisis by expanding its reach abroad. We know very little about what the future holds in terms of strategic competition between China and the U.S. It will oscillate between two extremes, a contained and manageable deterioration tempered by business interests at one end of the spectrum to permanent and all-out hostility at the other. 1.4.4 Fragile and Failing States The boundaries between state fragility, a failing state, and a failed one are fluid and tenuous. In today's complex and adaptive world, the principle of non-linearity means that suddenly a fragile state can turn into a failed state and that, conversely, a failed state can see its situation improve with equal celerity thanks to the intermediation of international organizations or even an infusion of foreign capital. In the coming years, as the pandemic inflicts hardship globally, it is most likely that the dynamic will only go one way for the world's poorest and most fragile economies, from bad to worse. In short, many states that exhibit characteristics of fragility risk failing. State fragility remain, remains one of the most critical global challenges, particularly prevalent in Africa. Its causes are multiple and intertwined. They range from economic disparity, social issues, political corruption, and inefficiencies to external or internal conflicts and natural disasters. Today, it is estimated that around 1.8 to 2 billion people lived in fragile states, a number that will certainly increase in the post-pandemic era because fragile countries are particularly vulnerable to an outbreak of COVID-19. The very essence of their fragility, weak state capacity, and the associated inability to ensure the fundamental functions of basic public services and security makes them less able to cope with the virus. The situation is even worse in failing and failed states that are almost always victims of extreme poverty and fractious violence and as, and as such can barely or no longer perform basic public functions like education, security, or governance. Within their power vacuum, helpless people fall victim to competing factions in crime, often compelling the UN or a neighboring state, not always well-intentioned, to intervene to prevent a humanitarian disaster. For many such states, the pandemic will be the exogenous shock that forces them to fail 
and fall even further. For all these reasons, it is almost a tautology to state that the damage inflicted by the pandemic to fragile and failing states will be much deeper and longer lasting than in the richer and most developed countries. It will devastate some of the world's most vulnerable communities. In many cases, economic disaster will trigger some form of political instability and outbreaks of violence because the world's poorest countries will suffer from two predicaments. First, the breakdown in trade and supply chains caused by the pandemic will provoke immediate devastation like no remittances or increased hunger. And second, further down the line, they will endure a prolonged and severe loss of employment and income. This is the reason why the global outbreak has such potential to wreak havoc in the world's poorest countries. It is there that economic decline will have an even more immediate effect on societies. Across large swaths of sub-Saharan Africa in particular, but also in parts of Asia and Latin America, millions depend on a meager daily income to feed their families. Any lockdown or health crisis caused by the coronavirus could rapidly create widespread desperation and disorder, potentially triggering massive unrest with global knock-on effects. The implications will be particularly damaging for all those countries caught in the midst of a conflict. For them, the pandemic will inevitably disrupt humanitarian assistance and aid flows. It will also limit peace operations and postpone diplomatic efforts to bring the conflicts to an end. Geopolitical shocks have a propensity to take observers by surprise, with ripple and knock-on effects that create second, third, and more order consequences, but currently, where are the risks most apparent? All commodity countries are at risk. Norway and a few others do not qualify. At the time of writing, they are being hit particularly hard by the collapse in energy and commodity prices that are exacerbating the problems posed by the pandemic and all the other issues with which they conflate. Unemployment, inflation, inadequate health systems, and of course poverty. For rich and relatively developed energy-dependent economies like the Russian Federation and Saudi Arabia, the collapse of oil prices only represents a considerable economic blow, putting strained budgets and foreign exchange reserves under strain and posing acute medium and long-term risks. But for lower-income countries like South Sudan, where oil accounts for the quasi-totality of exports, 99%, the blow could simply be devastating. This is true for many other fragile commodity countries. Outright collapse is not an outlandish scenario for petrostates like Ecuador or Venezuela, where the virus could overwhelm the country's few functioning hospitals very quickly. Meanwhile, in Iran, U.S. sanctions are compounding the problems associated with the high rate of COVID-19 infection. Particularly at risk now are many countries in the Middle East and Maghreb where the economic pain was increasingly apparent before the pandemic and with restless youthful populations and rampant unemployment. The triple blow of COVID-19, the collapse in oil prices for some, and the freeze in tourism, a vital source of employment and foreign currency earnings, could trigger a wave of massive anti-government demonstrations reminiscent of the Arab Spring in 2011. 
In an ominous sign, at the end of April 2020 and in the midst of the lockdown, riots over joblessness concerns and soaring poverty took place in Lebanon. The pandemic has brought the issue of food security back with a vengeance, and in many countries it could entail a humanitarian and food crisis catastrophe. Officials from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization predict that the number of people suffering from acute food insecurity could double in 2020 to 265 million. The combination of movement and trade restrictions caused by the pandemic with an increase in unemployment and limited or no access to food could trigger large-scale social unrest, followed by mass movements of migration and refugees. In fragile and failing states, the pandemic exacerbates existing food shortages through barriers to trade and disruption in global food supply chains. It does so to such a considerable extent that on 21 April 2020, David Beasley, Executive Director of the UN World Food Program, warned the UN Security Council that multiple famines of biblical proportions have become possible in about three dozen countries, most notably Yemen, Congo, Afghanistan, Venezuela, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Syria, Sudan, Nigeria, and Haiti. In the poorest countries of the world, the lockdowns and the economic recession happening in high-income countries will trigger major income losses for the working poor and all those who depend on them. The decrease in overseas remittances that, count, that account for such a large proportion of GDP, more than 30%, in some countries like Nepal, Tonga, or Somalia is at a case in point. It will inflict a devastating shock to their economies with dramatic social implications. According to the World Bank, the impact of lockdowns and the ensuing economic hibernation that happened in so many countries around the world will cause a 20% decline in remittance to low- and middle-income countries from a $554 billion last year to $445 billion in 2020. In large countries like Egypt, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, and the Philippines, for which remittances are a crucial source of external financing, this will create a lot of hardship and render their economic, social, and political situation even more fragile, with a very real possibility of destabilization. Then there is tourism, one of the hardest hit industries from the pandemic, which is an economic lifeline for many poor nations. In countries like Ethiopia, where tourism revenues account for almost half, 47% of total exports, the corresponding loss of income and employment will inflict considerable economic and social pain. The same goes for the Maldives, Cambodia, and several others. Then there are all the conflict zones where many armed groups are thinking about how to use the excuse of the pandemic to move their agenda forward. Like in Afghanistan, where the Taliban is asking that its prisoners be released from jail, or in Somalia, where the Al-Shabaab group presents COVID-19 as an attempt to destabilize them. The global ceasefire plea made on 23 March 2020 by the UN Secretary General has fallen on deaf ears. Of 43 countries with at least 50 reported events of organized violence in 2020, only 10 responded positively, most often with 
simple statements of support but no commitment to action. Among the other 31 countries with ongoing conflicts, the actors failed not only to take steps to meet the call, but many actually increased the level of organized violence. The early hopes that concerns with the pandemic and the ensuing health emergency might curb long-running conflicts and catalyze peace negotiations have evaporated. This is yet another example of the pandemic not only failing to arrest a troubling or dangerous trend, but in fact accelerating it. Wealthier countries ignore the tragedy unfolding in fragile and failing countries at their peril. In one way or another, risks will reverberate through greater instability or even chaos. One of the most obvious knock-on effects for the richer parts of the world of economic misery, discontent, and hunger in the most fragile and poorest states will consist in a new wave of mass migration in its direction, like those that occurred in Europe in 2016. 1.5 Environmental Reset At first glance, the pandemic and the environment might seem to be only distantly related cousins, but they are much closer and more intertwined than we think. Both have and will continue to interact in unpredictable and distinctive ways, ranging from the part played by diminished biodiversity in the behavior of infectious diseases to the effect that COVID-19 might have on climate change, thus illustrating the perilously subtle balance and complex interactions between humankind and nature. Furthermore, in global risk terms, it is with climate change and ecosystem collapse, the two key environmental risks that the pandemic most easily equates. The three represent by nature and to varying degrees existential threats to humankind, and we could argue that COVID-19 has already given us a glimpse or a foretaste of what a full-fledged climate crisis and ecosystem collapse could entail from an economic perspective. Combined demand and supply shocks and disruption to trade and supply chains with ripple and knock-on effects that amplify risks and, in some cases, opportunities in the other micro-categories, geopolitics, societal issues, and technology. If climate change, ecosystem collapse, and pandemics look so similar as global risks, how do they really compare? They possess many common attributes while displaying strong dissimilarities. The five main shared attributes are, one, they are known, i.e. white swan, systemic risks that propagate very fast in our interconnected world, and in so doing, amplify other risks from different categories. Two, they are nonlinear, meaning that beyond a certain threshold or tipping point, they can exercise catastrophic effects like superspreading in a particular location and then overwhelming the capabilities of the health system in the case of the pandemic. Three, the probabilities and distribution of their impacts are very hard, if not impossible, to measure. They are constantly shifting and having to be reconsidered under revised assumptions, which in turn makes them extremely difficult to manage from a policy perspective. Four, they are global in nature and therefore can only be properly addressed in a globally coordinated fashion. And five, they affect disproportionately the already most vulnerable communities and segments of the population. And what are their dissimilarities? There are several, most of which are of a conceptual and methodological nature, like 
a pandemic being a contagion risk while climate change and ecosystem collapse are accumulation risks. But the two that matter the most are one, the time horizon difference. It has a critical bearing on policies and mitigating actions. And two, the causality problem. It makes public acceptance of the mitigation strategies more difficult. One, pandemics are a quasi-instantaneous risk whose imminence and danger are visible to all. An outbreak threatens our survival as individuals or a species, and we therefore respond immediately and with determination with, faced with the risk. By contrast, climate change and, na and nature loss are gradual and cumulative, with effects that are discernible mostly in the medium and long term, and despite more and more climate-related and exceptional nature loss events, there are still significant numbers who remain unconvinced of the immediacy of the climate crisis. This crucial difference between the respective time horizons of a pandemic and that of climate change and nature loss means that a pandemic risk requires immediate action that will be followed by a rapid result, while Climate change and nature loss also require immediate action, but the result or future reward in the jargon of economists will only follow with a certain time lag. Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, who is now the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, has observed that this problem of time asynchronicity generates a tragedy of the horizon Contrary to immediate and observable risks, climate change risks may seem distant in terms of time and geography, in which case they will not be responded to with the gravity they deserve and demand. As an example, the material risk that global warming and rising waters pose for a physical asset like a beachside holiday resort or a company like a hotel group will not necessarily be considered as material by investors and will therefore not be priced in by the markets. Two, the causality problem is easy to grasp as are the reasons that make respective policies so much more difficult to implement. In the case of the pandemic, the causation link between the virus and the disease is obvious. SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19. Apart from a handful of conspiracy theorists, nobody will dispute that. In the case of environmental risks, it is much more difficult to attribute direct causality to a specific event. Often, scientists cannot point to a direct link of causation between climate change and a specific weather event, like a drought or the severity of a hurricane. Similarly, they don't always agree about how a specific human activity affects particular species facing extinction. This makes it incredibly more difficult to mitigate climate change and nature loss risks. While for a pandemic, a majority of citizens will tend to agree with the necessity to impose coercive measures, they will res resist constraining policies in the case of environmental risks where the evidence can be disputed. A more fundamental reason also exists. Fighting a pandemic does not require a substantial change of the underlying socio-economic model and of our consumption habits. Fighting an environmental risks does. 1.5.1 Coronavirus and the Environment 1.5.1.1 Nature and Zoonotic Diseases 
Zoonotic diseases are those that spread from animals to humans. Most experts and conservationists agree that they have drastically increased in recent years, particularly because of deforestation, a phenomenon also linked to an increase in carbon dioxide emissions, which augments the risk of close human-animal interaction and contamination. For many years, researchers thought that natural environments like tropical forests and their rich wildlife represented a threat to humans because this is where the pathogens and viruses at the origin of new diseases in humans such as dang, Ebola, and HIV could be found. Today we know this is wrong because the causation goes the other way. As David Quammen, author of Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, argues, we invade tropical forests and other wild landscapes which harbor so many species of animals and plants and within those creatures so many unknown viruses. We cut the trees, we kill the animals or cage them and send them to markets. We disrupt ecosystems and we shake viruses loose from their natural hosts. When that happens, they need a new host. Often we are it. By now, an increasing number of scientists have shown that it is, in fact, the destruction of biodiversity caused by humans that is the source of new viruses like COVID-19. These researchers have coalesced around the new discipline of planetary health that studies the subtle and complex connections that exist between the well-being of humans other living species and entire ecosystems, and their findings have made it clear that the destruction of biodiversity will increase the number of pandemics. In a recent letter to the U.S. Congress, 100 wildlife and environmental groups estimate that zoonotic diseases have quadrupled over the past 50 years. Since 1970, land use changes have had the largest relative neg negative impact on nature and in the process caused a quarter of man-made emissions. Agriculture alone covers more than one-third of a terrestrial land surface and is the economic activity that disrupts nature the most. A recent ac academic review concludes that agriculture drivers are associated with more than 50% of zoonotic diseases. As human activities like agriculture with many others like mining, logging, or tourism encroach on natural ecosystems, they break down the barriers between human populations and animals, creating the conditions for infectious diseases to emerge by spilling from animals to humans. The loss of animals, natural habitat, and the wildlife trade are particularly relevant because when animals known as being linked to particular diseases like bats and pangolins with the coronavirus are taken out of the wild and moved into cities. A wildlife disease reservoir is simply transported into a densely populated area. This is what might have happened at the market in Wuhan where the novel coronavirus is believed to have originated. The Chinese authorities have since permanently banned wildlife trade and consumption. Nowadays, most scientists would agree that the greater population growth is, the more we disturb the environment. The more intensive farming becomes without adequate biosecurity, the higher the risk of new epidemics. The key antidote currently available to us to contain the progression of zoonotic diseases is the respect and preservation of the natural environment and the active protection of biodiversity. To do this effectively, it will be incumbent on us all to rethink our relationship with nature 
and question why we have become so alienated from it. In the concluding chapter, we offer specific recommendations on the form that a nature-friendly recovery may take. To be continued.